We have sang some wonderful truths. In fact, this last song, Lord, as we are called to behold who you are. Father, I pray you would help us to come to your word and let it bring us to an adoration of you. And now I pray, Father, you would help me to speak clearly. I pray I would, be, I would speak with your power, not on my own. I pray, Lord, in fact, that I would be out of the way and that your truth would burst forth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my youth pastor uh, was also the senior pastor of the church uh, that I attended. Uh, pastor Chuck was a, a wonderful, kind, compassionate man and certainly was very kind uh, and, and very patient with a very awkward teenage boy. Uh, even after the church was able to hire a youth pastor, he continued to be uh, very actively involved in the youth group. Uh, I think he just kind of had a love for that ministry, even though he was uh, the senior pastor. But one particular Sunday morning, he was preaching just like I am right now. And in our church, or the church we attended, over to the right was a section. So the auditorium would have gone a little bit further than ours did. And there would have been a section of, of rows or pews just right here. And in our church, or the church I went to as a teenager, pretty much every teenager in the church sat there. And one Sunday morning, he was in the middle of preaching and he just stopped. And he kind of walked over to this part of the stage and he looked to that section of the church. And for about 30 seconds, he told us how disappointed he was by all the noise that was coming from that section because there was too much talking. And you could imagine some 250 people who attended that church that morning, all of their heads turning our direction. And we all looked at the floor. And I can tell you that I cannot remember that ever being a problem again. I mention this because the first theme of this first speech from God is really a confrontation with Job for having talked too much. Job has said too much. His, he has made assumptions, he has made arguments, he has asked questions, and they have led him further and further off course from what is the truth. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that in confronting Job, that God's uh, operation, his standard operation, is to ask questions. He does this throughout Scripture. In fact, after Adam eats the forbidden fruit and they try to hide from God, God shows up and what's the question he asks? Where are you? It's not like God didn't know. After Cain kills Abel, God shows up and he says to Cain, where's your brother? It's not like God didn't know. Elijah goes and hides and God finds him and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? As if he didn't know. The point being is that it seems when his children get into places where they are troubled and they are not responding to that trouble the right way, it is God's practice to first gently bring them back. Now the questions that we find over the course of these chapters are not random. They are all uh, directly in response to things that Job has said over the course of this book. 
And hopefully through that you'll see the tenderness of God as he deals with Job. Again, the point being that God is trying to bring Job back to his senses. Isn't this how we are? When things get askew or perhaps when things don't go right, doesn't, uh, don't we have a feeling that the whole world has become disordered? We begin to wonder uh, and we begin to lose track of the answers to questions. We wonder, okay, who am I? What am I doing here? Where is God? What about this life? What about this evil? What about this death? We become very scrambled in our minds. And so what God is doing to Job is perhaps a help to us in giving us this basic roadmap back to right thinking in our times of trouble. I've got three points for you this morning. Number one. Number one, God's wisdom is present in both joy and sorrow. God's wisdom is present in both joy and sorrow. Now, all the way back in chapter 3, the very first speech of Job, it is the darkest part of the book. Because there in that chapter, Job declares he wishes he had never been born. After losing his children, losing his business, losing his health, having his wife denounce him, having his friends not sure what to do with him. The little children, the text says, were even afraid to approach him. Job has wishing he had never been born. He is wishing that he would just die. To Job in chapter 3, everything had gone black. There was no color left in the world. Job sees no color. He sees no life. He sees no point. Now here in this text, in verses 4 through 7, God responds by taking Job on a tour of creation. He begins to ask Job where he was as God slowly built all that we know to exist. It is presented to Job as God's great building uh, project, as if God was making a, a majestic cathedral. It is supposed to be described here as something beautiful and majestic. All the biochemical regularities of the earth as we watch the creation exist and do its thing. It's moral and it's social order. The Bible tells us in many places as we sit and look at nature that it can make us wise. Consider the birds, the Bible says. Consider the flowers, the Bible says. Look to the stars, the Bible says. Those things can make us wise. But the point here is in verse 7 of chapter 38. That this creation, this building project of God was a source of rejoicing. As God hung the stars and as he hung the moon, the, 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 the uh, majestic angels of heaven gave a great song. As Adam and Eve were set forth to be fruitful and multiply and to rule over the earth, there was a great shout of joy in heaven. And so God is confronting Job. Job, you're trying to say that my creation is devoid of anything good. And so he says, Job, how can you say that when you weren't there to hear the song or to hear the shouts of rejoicing? In chapter 7, Job uses the picture of the sea. I don't know how many of you have ever done a lot of sailing. Job uses this picture of the sea as a metaphor for evil. Just like the sea is wild and untamable, uh, he says, that must be how evil is. Evil must be wild and untamed. So God responds in verses 8 through 11. 
he, he, uh, God takes the sea and he says, no, no, Job. The sea is like a baby. And he's using Job's metaphor. So God is saying, the sea, this thing you think is evil. He says, it's really more like a baby. Now, James 1 picks up the same picture. He says, there is evil in the world because human beings give birth to it. It's quite a graphic picture that James uses that if there is evil in the world, if you want to track its source all the way back, somewhere somebody gave birth to that evil. But God is saying to Job, Job, these are just the evil. This, these things that you think are untamable, they're just a little baby to me. Evil is, is capable of being swaddled. He says to Job, I have the ability to, to put it in a playpen so it can't wander wherever it wants. It, has, it is under, evil itself is even under authority, just like the sea. Who is that? He says, I have told the sea to go here and no further. So he asked Job, how can you think that evil has the free reign, that it is wild and loose? He says, when I'm the one who tells, where the, tells the sea where to go. It's a comparison of power. He's saying to Job, is there really any power greater than mine? And he's saying in verses 12 through 15, he's saying, Job, wickedness will not prevail. I will pull it back like a hyperactive child on a tether. You can ask my mother about a hyperactive child on a tether. We remind ourselves at the beginning of this book that Satan was told how far he could go and he could go no further. But even Job has brought up the idea that perhaps death is the answer to all of it. Maybe death is where I need to go. Death is what I need to have in order to deal with this. In verses 16 to 18, uh, God corrects Job. He said, Job, death is not an event. Death is a place. It is a place like the North Pole or the place like Mount Everest. He says, there is no way for you to get there and come back safely. But I can do that. In fact, isn't that the picture we see in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That God has the ability to go to the place of death and come back safely. Have you ever been in a situation where your world lost color? Have you ever watched your life get gray? Perhaps you've dealt with this in a small way. Can you remember, some of you can remember back to your school days? You start out the day you get an A on a paper or a test that you uh, never figured would happen. And so you come out of the classroom and now all of a sudden the birds are chirping and the sky is blue and you love your friends and this is an awesome skirt to wear and it just, it is a great day. And then you get home. Mom says it's time to clean your room. And all goes gray. This isn't fair. My life is terrible. Some of us have dealt with it in a far more serious way. Perhaps you've had to deal with long-term depression. Or how about the struggle that some women have? After having a baby and, and just being full of joy of seeing this brand new little one going home a few days later and because of all the chemical changes in her body, now beginning to wonder whether or not she really wanted to be a mom. Perhaps you've suffered like Job. The death of a child, a spouse, a loved one. You've had to deal with a divorce, an abandonment, some form of abuse. 
I've sat across from people just feet away from me who have cut themselves, have tried to kill themselves because they feel like the world is empty, that it has got nothing, no color, no life, no point. And God is saying to Job, this is not the right perception. The earth and the fullness of it contains signs of God's goodness and watch care everywhere. Consider the birds and the flowers and the ant and the stars. Now, we're not trying to be naive. I'm not encouraging you to go around and see puppies and rainbows everywhere. Evil does exist. But as God has explained to Job, it is not have free reign. So we hear the news. And we see what is going on in certain places of the world. And we think evil is winning. It is going further. But it's still on its tether. Still confined by its playpen. We can hear about girls in slavery and we can hear about the persecution of the church in China. But this, is, this evil birthed by mankind is easily swaddled by God. It will be told that it could go here and no further and it will have to obey. And even death has lost its sting, hasn't it? I got to talk about the Oregon Trail and the Mormon Trail this last week. The Great Plains are scattered with the bones of those who died trying to get east to west. And if you you made it, you never went home. And today, you can travel east to west with great ease, little danger. But now it's the same thing is true with death. Jesus went there and returned. The path is blazed. And the, the Bible promises that we go there and we will return safely on the trail that is Christ. So God's wisdom is present in both uh, sorrow and in joy. Number two, God's wisdom is beyond ours. Verse 22 to verse 38, we get four references to water. We understand that water is the key element for building a city. It is the central to the existence of life. And God is going to use water as a picture to show just how big the distance is between his wisdom and ours. God takes an interesting picture here. He, he says to Job, I want you to picture it this way. As if I had barns in heaven, and in those barns I have boxes of rain and thunderstorms and snow and hail. And I have the ability to go to each one of those barns and grab a box when I need it. And he says to Job, sometimes I go and I get some rain. And I use it in order to, uh, as a weapon in times of war. And we can see that in the Bible, number of scenes in Exodus and Joshua and the Kings, where weather plays a huge part in whether or not the, the children of Israel win a battle. Even in modern history, both Napoleon and Hitler were stopped by what? Snow. God poured out snow. God's pulling out boxes of rain, he says to Job, and he sends this rain so that plants can grow. He uses this water to curve out the earth like you see in the the Grand Canyon. God is saying, Job, I'm using my management, my water management skills, and I'm sending rain where there are no people. I'm sending rain so that flowers will bloom that no human will ever see. He says, Job... Rain takes up a number of forms. You have rain, or water takes up a number of uh, forms. Rain, dew, ice, and frost. This water can bring life. It can protect a plant. It can even kill a plant. So the question to Job is this. 
If I were to give you the simple task of water management, could you do any better? And certainly in times of great trouble, great temptation, we are apt to think that our wisdom is higher than God's, aren't we? We like to think that perhaps it is only a step. Perhaps we're not arrogant enough to say I'm wiser than God, but we like to think that it's really close. Like if God told us to start a religion, you know what we would do? We would, we would go find the rich guys and the smart guys and the good-looking people. We say this to ourselves all the time. We say, well, I would never let that happen. If given control over our lives, we are certain we would know what to do and what would make us happy. But God's point to Job is this. If you were given water management, if you were given leadership over the water management department, you would make a mess of my storehouses. But there's a deeper image here. For the Bible often makes water and grace synonymous. Just like the rain from heaven can only come because God sends it, grace only falls upon people when God sends it. God uses grace to carve out canyons in individual lives. The Bible is very clear that if you're a Christian this morning, it is because you heard the good news of Jesus Christ and the river of God's grace made it to you. You would not have believed if he had not first made you drink of his grace. And just like God sends rain to places men are not at and where we don't walk and makes flowers bloom that we will never see. And cause us to ask the question, why would God send rain there? We saw on a Sunday night a few weeks ago that there was a group of people in the Sudan that spent generations worshiping Satan and doing human sacrifices. But the grace of God found its way there. We might cringe to think that the river of God's grace would ever find its way to those who would stand and applaud the murder of babies. But if you pay attention, today in some of the most liberal cities in America, the gospel is making inroads and it is raining grace on people who at one time embraced the most vile behavior. Or consider this, God made it rain grace on the rapist murdering cannibal that was Jeffrey Dahmer. Just like rain. God will send grace into lives whose lives will perhaps barely register a blip. Maybe one, two people ever impacted by the grace of God in their life. Now, why would God do that? Why would he send grace to a a place so desolate so that those who were there might survive? Perhaps someday a stranger, a friend, a loved one, a teenager might stop and smell the rose that is God's grace in their life. But if we were given charge over this, We would make a mess of it. This is what God does, and it is far beyond our wisdom. And number three, God's wisdom involves details. The last section here ends uh, ends at verse 39, or starts at verse 39 of chapter 38, runs through the entirety of chapter 39. It's a wonderful kind of national geographic section of Scripture. It opens with the picture of lion cubs. You ever been flipping the channel and a National Geographic special comes on? 
And there's those little baby lion cubs, and we all go, aww. And, the, and if this is a documentary, God then moves the camera to the birds, just being born, cheap, uh, chirping out to their mother. But as the voiceover in the National Geographic special will tell you, if they don't eat, they will die. And so we move to a, ki- a picture of a, of a lioness waiting in the wings to kill the gazelle. God is telling Job, I'm the one who keeps this order. The number of Psalms tell us the same thing. It is God who feeds the lion. It is God who makes sure that the ox has enough to eat. Do you begin to see the picture, though? The lion kills the gazelle to feed her cubs. The suffering of one for the survival of many. He goes on. He asked Job, do you know how long goats are pregnant? I don't know. Did anybody here know how long goats are pregnant? Do you know how long the deer has been pregnant, God says? The implication here is that God does. And he's saying to Job, I'm the one who has to be the midwife. He's saying as they, as they don't have hospitals or OBGYNs or birthing coaches, God's saying, I'm the one who sits and waits with them as they go through the labor pains of birth. And then he moves his documentary camera to the wild donkey, roaming free. That was probably the weirdest experience that Carol and I had as we were driving through Arizona. We were coming down out of uh, Nevada. And all of a sudden, these road signs started popping up saying, watch out for wild donkeys. So if you go to Arizona, watch out for wild donkeys. But God is using the wild donkey as a picture. He goes around. It's even interesting because he uses this picture as the, this wild donkey mocks the other donkeys. The ones that are being used by human beings to plow their fields and do their tasks. But God says, look, I'm the one who gave that donkey his freedom. My wisdom is at the margins of life. There's not an inch of this creation outside of my counsel. And then he moves to a picture of a wild bull. That's the, the term unicorn there in your King James. The wild bull. Now David uses, in the psalm, uses the picture of a wild bull as a symbol of his problems. So God invites Job, hey, uh, how about you go out into the wilderness and find yourself a wild bull? How about you go up and pet it? How many of you would love to go up and pet a wild bull? He says, Job, go ahead. Try and put a bit in its mouth or try to contain it into your barn. Job would likely know that this would be suicide. Watch a few rodeos and see what a bull will do. And then the last picture, the comparison between the dumb ostrich and the mighty warhorse. In the animal kingdom, just like ours, there are both the foolish and the brave. You blow a trumpet and startle an ostrich, it may very well crush the eggs it was just sitting on. Blow a, blow a horn and a warhorse will head first into battle, laughing at the danger. And at the end of the text, we have this bloody picture. Birds with their mouth full of dead animal carcass and blood everywhere. Life, death, birth, danger, so much more. And God is saying to Job, I am in every single detail. God is giving Job bite-sized pieces of wisdom. He's making it clear to Job that all that has happened to him is not a mistake 
the loss of his children, the loss of his business, the loss of his health, are not because he exists somehow, somehow exists outside of God's reach. It did not happen because God was not paying attention. It does not happen because God's only interested in the bigger things in life. And that's what leads to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 40. God says to Job, are you really going to contend with me? Are you really going to get in my face and say, this was a big mistake? Do you think you could do any better? The second point, or the second purpose of this big, long speech is to begin to answer Job. That picture, the suffering of one for the survival of many, should jump right at us. In every place of beauty we find in this earth, we will find some evil. You think of it, somewhere in a lab, somebody came up with painkillers to help relieve the suffering of those who were in a great deal of pain. What a wonderful, beautiful thing to do for somebody, but then we use it to get high. God gives us the the beauty and the enjoyment of physical intimacy, and we twist it into infidelity and abuses. God gives us the knowledge of science so we can harvest the earth and its bounty thereof, and we create gas chambers at Auschwitz. So how was God going to deal with evil? What we're being told is that in our times of pain, God is our midwife. That as we face down and stare down wild bulls of situations and suffering, God is the one who will put the bit in its mouth. We are the ostrich that is spooked by the war, uh, by 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 the trumpet. But God is not spooked. There's that picture again. The suffering of one for the survival of many. We've already seen this applies to Job. Job is suffering not for himself but for the generations of people who will read his story and be helped by it. And of course, the bigger point here, the bigger story here points to Christ. Because at the cross of Jesus, all of this turns around, doesn't it? Here we find how we are going to see the problem of evil dealt with. The gospel of Jesus Christ, for example, changes the heart of the drug addict. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes men repent of their perversions. The gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to use our skills for the betterment of our neighbor. The gospel of Jesus Christ takes out the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. This is the answer to evil, the cross of Christ. He is the only wise God. His wisdom is outside of our understanding. But it is there. It is a part of every time of sorrow. It is a part of every time of joy. God's wisdom is very much in place in your life right here, right now, in whatever situation you're facing. It was God's wisdom that came up with the plan of salvation through the suffering of one man, Jesus Christ, for the salvation of the many. God's wisdom is great. And it is for you today and it is for every part of your life. Let's pray. Father. This great speech as we are confronted with your mighty wisdom. 
Lord, this was not meant to, to, to rattle us, but to gently bring us back and to remind us of who we are and who you are and that, that evil itself is restricted and that goodness is all around. That you are there in the midst of our pains. That you can pit, put the, the bit in the mouth of the wild bulls that are our problems. That while we get scared like the ostrich, you are the mighty warhorse that answers to the trumpet. We thank you, Father, that your wisdom flows and is a part of every single thing that happens. May we take immense comfort in that, as that wisdom is also what brought us our salvation in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, please, as you take the blue hymn book.